Well, many of you who were raised in Christian homes remember the time when you, or maybe a middle school child in your home, was old enough to go on a missions trip. Sometimes you traveled to a distant place, and sometimes, if you were here at Savior, you may have traveled into Chicago for a week to help in the neighborhood with uh, very practical uh, things in people's homes and in their yards and so forth, and then share the gospel as you had the opportunity. The youth leaders then, before such a trip, put together a list of what you would need to bring. Clean clothes, a pillow, a bag, sleeping bag, personal items, of course, snacks, and your Bible, all stuffed into a duffel bag or a backpack. The places where you would stay were all prearranged. I remember a couple of send-offs in the parking lot at All Souls when Andrew, the youth pastor at the time, brought a water gun filled with holy water and doused the kids with it. <laughs> We might have laughed just a little bit, but the trip was truly serious business and protection was needed. Early in Matthew 10, from the gospel passage last week, as Jesus was telling his disciples what they would need as they traveled, preaching and healing and casting out demons in the power and authority of Jesus, we noticed his list was quite different. If you're going to be Jesus' traveling disciple and prayer minister, you were to take no money, no bag, no extra shirt or sandals or staff, and you were not to arrange for a place to stay. These directions leave us sort of scratching our heads. Don't take anything? What's that all about? The plan seems to be for the disciples to rely on the kindness of people who would take them into their homes and provide for them as they traveled. That's kind of weird and wild, and it seems risky and maybe even a little irresponsible. But Jesus then explains what the core of journeying for him would be like, and this is where I want us to spend our time this evening. Jesus is speaking in Matthew 10, verse 40, as they were just getting ready to leave. He wanted them to get this. So I imagine he spoke slowly and deliberately, making eye contact with each one. These are his words. You've already heard them. Anyone who welcomes you as my disciples welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me, meaning the Father, Father God. Preacher and scholar Scott Jose explains, if the message of the disciples was worth hearing, and if the disciples presented that message to those they met with all the loving urgency it warranted, then people would take them in, into their homes, into their lives. Strangers who met them would know that they were different. These followers of Jesus would have a quality about them, almost an aura that had rubbed off on them from Jesus and would make its way deep into the souls of those they met. Hearts would be opened 
Doors would be left ajar and they would be welcomed, cared for, provided for. The worthy strangers who saw or sensed a resemblance to Jesus in the lives of the traveling disciples and invited them into their homes, these folks were drawn closer to the true God and his Christ. And the likeness of Christ would be reproduced in them through their contact with the disciples. We've had people in our lives like that, where we sensed a oneness with them, whether we really knew them very well or not. Years ago, Joanne, an acquaintance who lives in Minnesota, had been asked to speak to a group of folks down here in the Wheaton area. Bill and I offered to have her stay with us, and when we welcomed her into our home, immediately we sensed a oneness to the Lord, in the Lord with her. You know what I mean, right? So then, if we truly believe Matthew 10:40, when we welcome Joanne into our home, who else did we welcome? Jesus himself. We welcomed Jesus and we sensed a deepening oneness with him as well as with her. Joanne, Bill, and I shared meals together. We laughed together and I remember she taught us her family secret about how to fry an egg without breaking the yolk or overcooking it. Now why would I remember that? Because I'm bad at making fried eggs. <laughs> And then, in a private conversation, she shared how she had gone deeper into prayer through her study of the mystics. Jose writes, if people come to love Jesus' disciples enough to welcome them into their homes, into their lives, then Jesus himself will be present with them in all his fullness. And that was our experience. Then in verses 41 and 42, we're reminded that prophets and ministers and just downright good people or even little children can be welcomed as Jesus as well. So we have the privilege of welcoming folks into our lives, into our homes, regardless of station. And when we welcome them, we are welcoming Jesus himself. When we do this, the obvious reward then is experiencing living in the presence of Jesus and the, in the process becoming more and more like him. We are receiving him, welcoming him, moving toward displaying and deepening the likeness of Christ from the inside out. Now when I read verse 40 and got what Jesus was actually saying, that we, Jesus' disciples, us included, that are sitting here tonight, are becoming one with him, becoming more like him, I thought, no way, not gonna happen. Because I usually think more about my flaws than I do about my strengths. I'm discouraged when I lose my temper, when I'm critical or judgmental. And, Excuse me. And I think I'll never measure up. 
I grew up thinking Jesus was our model, but also never really believing I'd get close to being Christ-like. So I've spent a fair amount of time thinking about the inconsistency between who Jesus is and who I am. There seems to be a significant discrepancy between what is and what I had hoped Christ-likeness and holiness might look like. What this scripture holds out as our goal that is coming to this place of being identified so closely with Jesus, hold on, that people get us mixed up, that doesn't seem possible. But Matthew 10 says, it is possible. Anyone who welcomes you as my disciples is welcoming Jesus. We are one with him if we are his disciples, his friends. This passage seems to make it clear. People will meet Jesus through us, just as they did through the disciples, just as Bill and I did through Joanne. So in Jose's words, there is to be a radical consistency between the Jesus we proclaim and the way we live our lives with him. As I've thought about the possibility of living a radically consistent life with Jesus, I love those words, I don't live them yet, but radically consistent, a radically consistent life with Jesus, I realize that some of our brothers and sisters throughout church history have believed in and experienced this hope more consistently than we do. As some of you know, in the early 2000s, I had the privilege of helping lead a pilgrimage to the sites of the Spanish mystics. To clarify what a mystic is so you don't freak out, A.W. Tozer <laughs> defines, defines it this way. A mystic differs from the ordinary Orthodox Christian only because they are quietly, deeply, and sometimes almost ecstatically aware of the presence of God in their own nature and in the world around them. Their religious experience is immediate acquaintance with God by union with the eternal Son. Union, oneness with Jesus. I think that's what Matthew is talking about. One of the highlights of the pilgrimage for me was spending time in Avila, the home of St. Teresa, a mystic from the 16th century. Just outside Avila was a convent where Teresa lived. While we were there, Chris Kepner, who I'm sorry isn't here tonight, she would be sitting right over here, uh, Chris, who is a part of our leadership team, shared a story about Teresa that I hadn't heard before. As the story goes, Teresa, perhaps in her 30s at the time, had a vision of Jesus as a child on the stairs in the convent where she lived. And Jesus, whom she was seeing now, asked her, who are you? Teresa responded, I'll try to do this in Spanish, or part of it. I am Teresa de Jesus. That was the name she took at her vows, Teresa of Jesus. And then she asked, the child, who are you? And he replied, I am Jesus de Teresa. I am Jesus of Teresa. Though I can't vouch for the veracity of the story, I choose to believe it. 
particularly as I ponder Jesus' words at the end of Matthew 10, those who welcome you are welcoming me. And when they welcome me, they are welcoming the God who sent me. Teresa discovered in those moments on the stairs the oneness that she and Jesus shared, and I have pondered that many times since then, including during my time with Joanne when we spoke of St. Teresa. Our Lord desires for his followers to have their identity so completely wrapped up with Jesus that there is no separation. Jesus' heart and his followers' hearts were to be one. There are a variety of places in scripture that point us toward this oneness. Acts 2, verses 38 and 39 say this, repent and be baptized and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So first, we see that in repentance and baptism, we are called called to a oneness with Jesus. Listen to this passage in Romans 6. 6. It wasn't read tonight, but it's in that chapter, and it's from the message. Here's what happens in baptism. When we went under the water, we left the old habits of sin behind. When we came up out of the water, we entered into the new place of grace, of oneness with Christ. Now, I've shared this with some of you before, but our pre-baptismal lives are like dry sponges. You know what they're like. Hard, pretty much unusable. But when a dry sponge is plunged into a bucket of water, we wait a few seconds and then begin to see the sponge softening as the water fills it. A filling, a saturation, a oneness. We can't really describe adequately what happens at baptism, except that after this exchange of water and sponge, the sponge is now in the water, and the water is what? In the sponge. There's no separation, there's a oneness. There are quite a few of us here who come from evangelical backgrounds where baptism by immersion is the chosen mode. I remember the first baptism I saw when I became an Anglican. A baby was being baptized, and when the priest administered the rite, he poured a huge amount of water over this child's head and face. I was sort of startled. As former Baptists, after the service, of course, we asked the priest about it, and he said, with a little bit of humor, but also deep sincerity, I try to get as close to full immersion as I can. <laughs> oneness, oneness with the Lord. Jesus in you and you in him. This miracle of the sacrament of baptism calls us and invites us into a radical consistency between the Jesus we proclaim with our words and the Jesus who lives through us. Secondly, Acts 2 also, we are baptized in water and then the Holy Spirit fills us. We gradually grow more fully into sharing the identity of Jesus. Through confirmation and welcoming the Holy Spirit's fullness, which many of you did when Bishop Todd was with us just a few weeks ago, this is a fresh welcoming of the Holy Spirit into our lives. That is a part of embracing oneness and fullness in the Holy Spirit. 
third then, we see that our growing in oneness with Jesus comes through spiritual exercises and disciplines. In Matthew 11, we read that a couple of weeks ago, Jesus guides us to a place of rhythm and rest. And the message renders verses 28 through 30 this way. You likely know them. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Jesus says, come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me, work with me, watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Keep company with me, Jesus says, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. One of the things I love about spiritual formation is that through the practices, we are invited to put ourselves into a place. That's the function of the practice or the discipline, putting ourselves into the place where God can touch us. And there he produces his likeness in us, unforced, rhythmic, grace-filled. God does the work in baptism, in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and also in the spiritual exercises. Our Savior children and young people have been opening themselves to some of the practices of the ancient church, like breath prayer, silence, the examine, lexio. What great examples our kids are for us. These disciplines are not meant to push believing Christians into wearing themselves out through trying harder and harder to be good until they get it right, but rather by simply, what have I said, putting themselves in a place where God can make them and us one with Jesus. Simone Weil was a 20th century French mystic who has some beautiful ideas about God, had, she is with the Lord, but also had some very interesting, expiring, and stretching things to say related to the spiritual practices and how we might cooperate with God. She writes, there are people who try to raise their souls like one continually taking standing jumps in the hope that if they jump higher every day, a time may come when they will no longer fall back, but will go right up to the sky. We cannot take a single step toward heaven. It is not in our power to travel in a vertical direction. If, however, we look heavenward for a long time, God will come and take us up. He raises us up easily. I invite you to look heavenward for a long time. In the scripture, fix your eyes on Jesus. From the inside out then, we are raised into that place of oneness, of union with Jesus. And finally, we come into oneness with Jesus through the truth of scripture. Sometime in my 40s, I heard a teaching on Colossians 1 on a cassette tape, you of course remember what those were, and I was driving, I was going up Route 53, I was almost at Sam's Club, 
when I heard uh, the teacher who was speaking on the tape that it was actually Leanne Payne. And she said this, and this is the secret. Christ lives in you. This is Colossians 1. This gives you assurance of sharing his glory, of being one with him in his glory. Colossians wants us to really get the wonder that Christ lives in you. His life is your life, and your life is his life. She went on to say, this Christian union with God is Christ in us, uniting us to God the Father and all that is ultimate reality. We do not climb a ladder of knowledge, goodness, or good works to God. Any such mode bypasses the incarnation and the cross. Rather, Christ descends to us and into us, he incarnates us, we are indwelt. And she used a strange word, we are in Godded. She suggested then, I'm in the car, that I place my hand over my heart. My heart pounded. The words, her words, were meeting a deep longing in my soul for oneness with Christ. I pulled my car over to the side of the road and as I placed my hand on my heart, I prayed with her, speaking her words, Christ in me, my life is hidden with you, Lord Jesus, Christ in me. The reality came to me that this relationship with Jesus is not just a wise decision. It isn't simply a promise to obey or a list of rules to follow. It is a supernatural impartation of Jesus himself to his followers. Jesus and you are inhabiting the same space. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Christ is in you. Those who welcome you as his disciples, Jesus says, are welcoming me. And when they welcome me, he says, they are welcoming the God who sent me. And because of this miracle, a life of radical consistency is possible, one step at a time. And I invite you just now to boldly just place your hand on your heart and pray these words after me. You can pray them aloud or you can whisper them. Christ is in me. I am united with you, Lord. My life is hidden with you. Christ is in me. Brothers and sisters, don't strive. Just receive. Amen.